We're going to start in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Then look in verse uh, 13. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. And he speaks it to us by his spirit because he loves us. You may be seated. This first passage in the book of Exodus is the introduction to our greater understanding of salvation. If you're going to understand why you need to be saved, if you're going to understand what Christ saves you from, then you need to understand the Exodus and what they were saved from. Because I'm convinced that what we have in the New Testament is a sequel to the book of Exodus. What we have toward the end of the Old Testament is promises from the prophets that we need a new Exodus. We need another salvation from this kind of reality that we've just seen in Exodus chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, but when I come to a sequel, I can get a bit squeamish. I can get a bit nervous, especially when the original is awesome. And the original work of salvation of God in in Exodus, uh, throughout the whole book of Exodus, is awesome. It is something that He did uh, for the nation of Israel that He didn't do for the rest of the world. He really saved them. But when I get to a sequel, I get a bit nervous. I can tell you, as I'm anticipating the end of the Star Wars saga, I'm a bit nervous. And, and that's, I've been given reason to be nervous. The, the, the first, the original was awesome. Uh, even even the, this last set of movies, the first one that they returned with was really good. And the last one that we saw was not very good. And they're coming to an end to this. And so I'm nervous that it will not end well. Even if you don't like Star Wars, um, you should, as someone who takes an interest in the Bible, understand. Uh, that we don't always need a sequel. I would just point you to the Book of Mormon. Uh, That's an awful follow-up to the Holy Bible. We didn't need that at all. But in the case of salvation, the original in the Book of Exodus, the saving work of God was wonderful. And we're going to look at the pattern that was set for salvation in Exodus. Because what I want you to see this morning in Acts is that the sequel is far better. And it is absolutely necessary. My hope is that the Lord is going to show us the beauty 
of what He has done for us. That we might awe again at salvation. And so the, the, the big application that i am been praying for and that I'm hoping the Lord will give is that we will worship Him because of what He's done for us. Better blood rescues us from a worse slave master to rest in a greater Savior. That's kind of the message in a sentence. The gospel truth for this sermon is better blood rescues us from a worse slave master to rest in a greater Savior. The pattern that Exodus is going to lay out for us has four stages. This is the pattern of salvation that you you may not have thought of before. This is exactly the same pattern that Jesus then leads us through that we see in Luke and in Acts. There's four stages. Number one, the blood has to be shed. Number two, the mediator has to go up. Number three, God has to come down. And number four, the word has to go out. The blood has to be shed. The mediator has to go up. God has to come down. And the word has to go out. And that's exactly what we see happens in Exodus. And it's exactly what we see happens in Acts. So point number one, the blood has to be shed. Or the blood has been shed. We saw this in Exodus chapter 1 already. God's salvation of Israel was from a ruthless enemy. And what we see in the New Testament is that that picture that we get in Exodus 1 is just a preview of a salvation from a more ruthless enemy. So what I want to do this morning is at each point that we see that each stage of salvation in Exodus, I want to compare it to what we see in Acts. So the world has a worse Pharaoh than we just read about in Exodus chapter 1. And if you are going to understand your need for salvation, if you're a Christian who has been saved, if you're going to understand what you've been saved from, you need to know that the world has a worse Pharaoh than the baddest man alive in Exodus chapter 1. And he's a worse Pharaoh because he is not just a prince among men. He is the prince of demons. The New Testament tells us that Satan is like Pharaoh in that he is a slave master, but he is worse than this terrible Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 in at least three ways. Our Pharaoh in this world is worse, number one, because he has a wider target. We just read how Pharaoh was targeting, he was singling out the people of Israel. Well, our Pharaoh, Satan, has targeted everyone on earth. The second way that our Pharaoh is worse is that he has a higher arch enemy. Satan is a worse slave master than this terrible slave master. Because Pharaoh... He was just worried. Did you hear how he said, let's be careful with the people of Israel, lest they make a pact with our enemies. All he's concerned about are human enemies and nations out there. But Satan's enemy is much worse and much higher. 
Satan's enemy is God himself. And since he has a higher enemy, he is a worse slave master. Number three, the third way that the world's Pharaoh is worse than this awful man in Exodus 1 is that he is aiming for a bitter eternity, not just a bitter life. Whenever Satan was able to persuade Adam and Eve to not trust God and obey God, and instead to obey Him, the Bible then from that moment on starts calling Satan the God of this whole world. Because he had won the allegiance of this whole world. Our slave master is not just seeing the the world the enemy na- or the nations as enemies or, or all the earth full of men and women and children as his enemies because he's got them all. They're not his enemies. They are his allies. He is the God of this world. Every single person who is born according to God's word, whether you're born in Egypt or you're born in Iraq or you're born in Graham. Everyone is called a child of wrath. Satan is a worse slave master because his slaves do not just have a bitter life. Now, that's what they had then was a bitter life. And it was bitter and it may have lasted decades of misery and suffering. But today, our slave master may give you an easy life. And this makes him much worse. This is part of the devil's power. Listen to me. Your slave master, who you were born serving and who I was born serving, is happy for you to be happy. He wants you to have ease. He's fine with all of that because he's he's got an end game in mind. It's an eternal plan. He knows that God's wrath is worse than Alzheimer's. He knows God's wrath is worse than loneliness. He knows that God's wrath is worse than betrayal. Satan is a worse slave master because whether his slaves experience great happiness in this life or excruciating pain in this life, listen to me, death will not be the end of suffering for those outside of Christ. It is not true that their suffering is over. It has only begun. Death delivers the slaves of Satan to their and his real enemy, the one that they have ignored in all their happiness. That's why he's a worse slave master, because after serving them, we have to face God. And Exodus makes very clear that only blood can save us from slavery 
Turn over to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be doing a lot of this. Turning throughout Exodus in a moment, we're going to go on to the book of Acts. But Exodus chapter 12 makes clear these stages of salvation that blood has to be shed if the slaves are going to go free. And Exodus teaches us four things that Acts affirms about salvation and this blood. There are four things that the original work of salvation teaches us about the kind of blood that can save us. Number one, the blood has to be from a lamb. And it has to be perfectly distributed to the right number of people, I guess you could say. We see this in in Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Look there. All the congregation of Israel is to know that on a certain day, every man is to take a lamb according to their house. A lamb for their house. Verse 4. And if the house is too small for a lamb, he's supposed to get, get together with his neighbors to make sure that there's a perfect amount of blood for the perfect amount of people. The second thing that Exodus teaches us about saving blood is that that lamb and his blood has to be without blemish. The lamb has to be without blemish. What I want you to see in verses 5 and 6 is that it has to, you could put it this way, it has to be a young son. The lamb has to be a young son if he's going to stand in the place for the young sons in Israel. See, God has promised to send judgment to the the whole country of Egypt. And everyone there, including the Israelites, will have the firstborn sons killed If they don't have this blood, look in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And then verse 6. All the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs. Because if you don't kill your lamb, your son's going to get killed. Number three. Blood that saves, saves us from God. Not just from Pharaoh. Yes, we want to be saved from slavery to Pharaoh. But verses 12 and 13 tell us that our ultimate salvation comes from God. God's own people have to be saved from God. Look in verses 12 and 13. This blood is going to be the sign for the people of Israel to ward off God Himself. When he comes to kill sinners, the blood is needed to be a sign on their behalf. And number four, it will, this saving blood, has the power to force Pharaoh to free them, even though all the plagues before did not have the power to free them from this mighty slave master Pharaoh. Look in verse 29, chapter 12. When the Lord comes in the 10th plague, verse 29, He comes and He strikes down all the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, including the the heir to the throne of Egypt in Pharaoh's home. Verse 30, Pharaoh rises up and all the Egyptians are crying out because there's not a house in all of their world where there wasn't dead. 
people. Verse 31, and then he summons Moses and Aaron and he says, get out of my land. Go free to serve the true God. This blood saves them. And then right before verse 33 in your Bibles, you might have a title. I've got the Exodus. In other words, that's what all of the salvation is described as. It's an Exodus. Have you thought about your salvation as an Exodus? As a leaving enemy hands, enemy territory by shed blood on your behalf and being freed no longer under the power of a tyrant in order to serve the Lord. Well, when we get to the New Testament, we have these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are describing specifically this first and most important stage of salvation. And what we learn is to free us from a better slave master. We need better blood than Israel had. We have blood, beloved, that is not just from an animal who would, who would spare humans from one nation's tyranny or, or from God's judgment for the rest of their life. And, and it is not the, the sons of God's enemies who end up dying when that blood is shed. It was not the evil sons of Egypt who died on that new Passover. Whenever Jesus was presented to the public in His baptism, we hear God say something to Him, and we hear John the Baptist say something about Him. God says to Jesus in the moment that He's first Introduced to the whole world, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And right after that, John the Baptist speaks up and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God did not kill the sons of some pagan, awful king. He killed his own son on the cross. And we should trust that what happened in the first exodus happened in our exodus. The Lamb's blood not only set God's people free, but the Lamb's blood also secured Pharaoh's perishing. It it set them down a path where God was then going to collide with Pharaoh. Turn the page to Exodus chapter 15. After they were backed into the Red Sea and God crushed Pharaoh in the Red Sea and saved his people fully out of Egypt. Look at what they say in Exodus 15. They're not just saying it, they're singing it. They sing, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. The Egyptians, Pharaoh, all of their enemies. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. My desire this morning is to compare salvation's original with salvation's sequel. And my hope is that we who have experienced the greater 
salvation would not respond with less enthusiasm than the Egyptians did in Exodus 15 in singing. The blood has been shed. But the second stage of salvation that we see in Exodus and then again in Acts is the mediator has gone up. The mediator has gone up. Look over in Exodus 19. Exodus 19. God had made a promise to the mediator, Moses. He was the man who was standing between God and his people. He promised, I'm going to use you to punish Pharaoh and free my people. And whenever all that work is done, my promise is you will worship me on my mountain. And then we get to chapter 19 of Exodus. And the people of verse 1, gone out of Egypt. Verse 2, they are encamping in Sinai. Before the mountain. He's keeping all of his promises. They're there to worship God. And notice verse 3. Moses goes up to God. And then he says in verse 4. Make sure you tell the people I've saved. How I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And if you will keep my covenant. Then you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. All the earth is mine, but you alone will be mine. You will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what happens in in the original. The mediator goes up to meet with God. And he hears things from God that he's supposed to then carry down to the people. In order to show that salvation's sequel is better than the original, we've seen this in Acts. Right after the blood is shed, the mediator went up. That's why in Acts chapter 1, a better mediator between God and man went to a better place. In two ways, Jesus is better as a mediator. Number one, he's not just a man like Moses. He is the Lamb. Now last we saw, he was dead. He shed his blood. For him to go up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he had to get up out of death. I love reading Fiction. I know, you may not be into fiction. I love reading fiction. Because I see in fiction the same thing I see in the Bible. Which is, you can't point to just one person in the Bible and say, if you want to know all that Jesus is like, look at that one person. It takes, it takes so many godly figures to get little pieces and glimpses of who Jesus is. And all of them might, might give us just a little shadow to appreciate who Jesus is. Well, Jesus plays the part of two mediators in the book of Exodus. He is, he is the lamb who was slain, but he's also Moses. He is the lamb who is better than just an animal. He's an eternal sacrifice. He is God, and therefore, when he sheds his blood, he is better as a mediator because he could absorb an eternal judgment, which is what you and I deserve. But he's also better because Our Moses, our mediator, Jesus, who who brings us to God, gave 
better blood so he could actually free us with his debt, with his death. He could actually pay the debt that we owe for our sins. He could die and his death can count for our death. But his blood is better also in that he can get up from death because his blood is so good. His blood is so pure that God has to look upon his blood and say, yes, your blood can stand for the guilty, but also I've got to regard your blood and the righteous have to live. Only the sinners can stay dead. So God raises his son and he goes up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. After the pattern that we saw in Exodus 19, the mediator goes up to meet with God. But it's a better place. It's for a better amount of time. It's not just for 40 days, but it's for an age. It's for the age. Beloved, we should rejoice because our mediator has gone up higher than Moses went up. Jesus went up out of the land of sin and death, never to be impacted in any way by it again. And Hebrews tells us that should make you rejoice in comparison to the mediators like Moses who died. Because we only need one mediator if he's alive. If he's alive, he can be up there making intercession for us because He's always living to mediate on our behalf. And we need that. Better blood rescues us from a worse slave master to rest in a greater Savior. Point number three, stage number three of salvation that we see in Exodus and then that Jesus fulfills in Acts is God has come down. God has come down. I want you to see just how wonderful the salvation is in Exodus 19. The original was magnificent and it was not enough. And God wants us to see very clearly how it's not enough. It's because it was so limited. Look at how this point is made over and over again. 19 verse 12. 19 verse 12. The mediator has gone up. But verse 12 says, God says to the mediator, since you're standing between me me and my people, make sure that all of the people take care lest they go up. Don't let them come up. Don't let them come up and and, and see me. They don't don't even need to get even, even close to the edge of the mountain. They shouldn't even touch the mountain or I'll put them to death. Verse 14, so Moses, in order to deliver that message, he has to go way down because he's way up with God. He's got to go way down for the people to hear because there's this separation. In verse 17, this point is just made over and over again. Moses brings the people of the camp to meet God. But what do you mean by meeting God? Well, you've got to stand right here at the foot of the mountain. And no closer. Verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And then the Lord calls Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses all by himself goes up. And then verse 21. 
The Lord says to Moses, now that you're up here, go back down and warn the people down there, lest they break through. Just remind them again, don't even take another step toward me or I will break out in anger against them. Verse 22 says, Verse 24, go down. And you can bring Aaron up with you. But don't let the other priests or the people come up lest I break out and destroy them. God comes down and there's still a separation. Not in Salvation sequel. Acts is so beautiful because once the mediator goes up in Acts 1, God comes down in Acts 2. Acts 2 verse 1 says all of the disciples were in one place and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The Lord doesn't want you to look back on the Old Testament and wish you lived in those days and say, man, I wish God would do some wonders around us. He wants you and me to be in awe that we live in the sequel which is far better because of who God comes to and where He lands. God comes not just to Moses. Acts 2 is so clear. God comes to all of His people. And He doesn't just land on a high place of earth. He lands inside of the hearts of His people. The original was so great a salvation that a world that is full of Eden's exiles, a world that is full of Egyptians and Israelites and and Canaanites who were were separated from God by their sin. In, In a world like that, the original is so great that God actually brings near a people to Himself And He's not acting as a judge to them. He's acting as a Savior to them. And yet, He's warning them. If you come too near, I will be your judge. And the sequel is so much better because sinners who are spread out across the whole world experience the fullness of separation's solution. Exodus, the whole book of salvation, ends in chapter 40 with this tabernacle, this building in, among Israel, becoming so pure that God's glory can actually fill it. And they rejoice and they're in awe at that. Well, the book of Acts begins in a very different place. It begins with hearts that have been so purified by better blood that God's Spirit can actually fill us. So for them, in Exodus, God says, I will live near you. Don't come one inch closer or you're dead. For us, beloved, God says, I will live within you. Jesus has shed better blood 
to rescue us from a worse slave master, to rest in a greater Savior. Stage number four, the word goes out. The word goes out. Uh, I, I can't make this glorious to you. My, my hope is that you are encouraged to see the pattern in Exodus then fulfilled in the book of Acts. But I, I think we're supposed to see it. And if we just went passage by passage and didn't see how the pieces fit together, we may, not, we may miss some of the wonder of what God has accomplished for us. What I want you to see in the book of Exodus is that Exodus chapter 20 happened on Pentecost. The word went out seven weeks after the original Passover. Israel was at the foot of Sinai. And they were experiencing what they had been saved for. They were experiencing what it means to worship God, which we learn means to listen to His word. So at Pentecost, in Exodus, the word of the covenant with God and His people goes out to those He saved. And so that we would appreciate salvation's sequel, God wants us to see that on Pentecost, seven weeks after the blood was shed by Jesus, once our mediator has gone up into heaven and God has come down in the Holy Spirit, the word of a better covenant goes out. It is a better word because there is a better relationship in at least two ways. We have a better relationship with God than they did back then. And I I pray that God right now would fill you with wonder and worship at our salvation that Christ has done. Listen to the first way that a better word has come out to us. The word that comes to us is not due. The word that comes to us is done. The word of the old covenant, look at, look at, look at, listen to the dues of the old covenant. Exodus chapter 20 on Pentecost, seven weeks after Passover, God speaks to His people and He says in verse, one, uh, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've saved you from slavery by the blood. Verse 3, do not. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Right after that, Turn over to Exodus 32. Several chapters later, but this is right after God says this in Exodus 20. Exodus 32. The word is do and do not do. And right after that, something happens that begs for a sequel. The mediator is still up on the mountain and then... Exodus 32, verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, Go down for your people who you brought up out of Egypt. He's changing his story now. I brought them out when I'm speaking the the do's and the do nots, but look at them already. They've broken it. They must not have been saved by me. Verse 8, they have quickly turned aside from what I commanded them. They made a golden calf and they worshiped the golden calf, and said, Behold, this is the God who saved us out of Egypt. The second commandment was don't make golden images. 
And then he says, verse 9, go down there. I'm sick of these people already. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn and I will destroy them. And I'll start over with you, Moses. And then verse 19. As soon as Moses comes near, you know, he breaks the he breaks those laws. He throws them down. Presumably the Ten Commandments that are written on those stones. And Moses' anger is burning hot. He throws the tablets out of his hands, breaks them out the mountain. Verse 26. And then Moses stands in the gate of the camp and he calls out to them, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. The sons of Levi come there. And notice what happens. Verse 27. He says to them, the Lord commands you to put your sword on your side and go throughout all of the people and each one of you kill your brother or your friend or your neighbor. And then verse 31, what happens? Moses returns to the Lord and says, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. They go throughout the people. These these priests with swords in verse 28. And notice how many are killed. Notice how many are cut. 3,000 are cut down. Now, with that in mind, let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Verse 36. What I'm convinced of is Moses repeats himself over and over in Exodus 32. And he says, by doing this sin, you have, Israel has committed a great sin. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching, and he is preaching to people, and it's clear that he's saying, you, Israel, have committed the greatest sin that has ever been committed in all of history. This is worse. Verse 36, look at Acts 2, 36. You have crucified and shed the blood of God's Christ. Your Savior, you murdered. Verse 37 Notice the language. They are cut with guilt. They realize they have committed this great sin. Verse 38. Then this offer that should be stunning to you goes out. If you will repent, Christ who you killed will forgive you and He will send your spirit to fill you with His presence. God will come down inside of you. And then verse 31. 3,000. Who were cut were saved. I don't think that these details are coincidental. I think the Lord wants us to know that salvation's sequel is better. Because the first Exodus led to 3,000 of the saved people being cut down. In judgment. And the second exodus leads to 3,000 guilty sinners being cut for salvation. 
So the word goes out in Exodus. Right after salvation. The word goes out. You have broken God's dues. The saved sinned a great sin. The word goes out in Acts chapter 2. Right after God's people have sinned the greatest sin in history. And the word from Peter is, Jesus can save you because of what He has done. Even though you did this. So that message goes to us this morning. No matter what you have done, you're guilty, and I'm guilty, of killing God's Son. He came to die for sinners. So the worst thing you can think of in your life It's far worse than that. You've murdered God's own son. But that son was raised from the dead. And he is so full of mercy that he can look you in the face after condemning you for killing him and say, if you repent of your sins, I will forgive you and I will even fill you with my Holy Spirit and you will be mine forever. Turn from your sins and trust in so great a Savior. The second thing I want you to see is that this is a better word that comes to us in this salvation because it's not will, it's not will, it's were. It's not will, it's were. Uh, uh, If you look back at the Ten Commandments uh, and the applications that followed, actually the word will is not there very much. It's actually the word shall. I think the word will, uh, we can agree, would have been too strong a word. God did not say, you will have no other gods before me. He didn't say will, because that, that never was going to, to go that way. Shall is the word he chose, because shall is somewhere in between will and should. Salvation from slavery ultimately led to a list of shoulds because they were still slaves in a greater sense than they had been saved from. They were still slaves to sin. They, so God comes to them and says, you should be devoted to me. You should not steal from one another. And what I want to just pay attention to is the language of Acts chapter 2. And see the word were. Not shall, but were. The word goes out. Blood is shed. Christ gets up. He goes up. And then God comes down. The 3,000 are saved. And the word that describes them is not shall or even will. It is were. As in the saved now were devoted to God. Look at that in chapter 2 verse 42, they devoted themselves to God's word. And, and, and verse 43, awe is coming upon them. This is a different people because they have different blood and a different mediator. And God has come down them in a different way. They were devoted to God in a way that they weren't devoted to God in Exodus 32. And the saved were not undevoted to one another. God does not say here, you should not steal from one another. What does he say in verse 44? All who believed were together. And verse 45, and they were selling their possessions. They weren't stealing from one another. They were selling their possessions to provide for one another. And sharing with one another. 
Jesus has accomplished something so much better than what we saw in the original. This sequel is better because there is no need for another. This is it. So, friends, my my desire is for you to rest in salvation. The sequel is better because there won't be another. We have, if you are in Christ, we have been rescued from slavery to sin. Slavery to Satan. Slavery to death. That work is done by better blood for us. Finding a mediator who will stand in between us and God and who can intercede with us forever, who's always in the presence and never leaves, that work is done. Removing all reasons for us to be separated from God, for us to be at distance with God, that work is done. Now the invitation is come close to me, come boldly to me. God has even come inside of us. He's not just come down to us, He's come down inside of us. And hearing the word because we're in relationship with God, that work is done. The Word, we're told, is now written on our hearts. And He's made us like Him again. We should rest securely because salvation is done. My hope is that the Lord will use the beauty of salvation and its wonderful sequel to make you worship. But I want to share one more reason why we should worship the Lord in His great work of salvation. It it comes from the language that we heard earlier from Mark 3, where Jesus told us why He came. Jesus said, I came for plunder. In the original work of salvation, if you remember this, when God set his people free, and they were leaving. They would knock on the doors of the Egyptians to plunder them, to get valuable things from them, to get gold and silver on the way out. Well, there's a plunder in the sequel. Did you hear it earlier in Mark chapter 3? Jesus said, no one can plunder a strong man unless he first binds the strong man. And then he can plunder his goods. We could spend a lot of time on that passage, but let me just summarize it for you. Jesus is saying that this whole world is the house of Satan. And Satan is the strong man. And Satan has jewels and things that are valuable to him, which are the souls of people. And so Jesus, in response to people saying, how is it that you come in and can cast out demons? He says, because I've bound the strong man. I'm the only one strong enough to go into his house and bind him, and I'm plundering his goods. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand who you are? The reason I want you to rejoice about salvation is because Jesus has called you sinner plunder. Jesus left heaven to shed his blood, to bind the one who no one could overcome, Satan, to die on a cross and set us free and secure Satan's perishing. And he did it because he viewed us as valuable, like we are to be cherished by him. Let us rest 
because salvation is done. And let us rejoice because so great a Savior considers you plunder if you were in him. Better blood rescues us from a worse slave master to rest in a greater Savior. Oh, Jesus, we pray that you would use this word to cause us to love you and understand what you've done for us. Make us rest in salvation that it is done because of you. Make us rejoice because not only have you given us a great salvation, you've bestowed upon us an honor that we can't imagine. You consider us cherished and precious and valuable, though we rebelled against you. Let us live with joy because of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.